0: Let's now turn for our scripture reading and our text this morning to the book of Zechariah chapter 13. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for all the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live, because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. But he will say, I am no prophet, I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say... This is my people, and each one will say, The Lord is my God. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we continue with the themes that uh, were especially introduced last time in this final section of Zechariah. We're considering the burden of the Lord concerning that day, that day that uh, Zechariah uh, refers to again and again also the day of the Lord, uh, the day of God's mighty acts of, of judgment and mercy, meaning destruction to his enemies and salvation to his people. And We've already uh, considered uh, last time that this day that is spoken of uh, cannot properly, in the light of uh, the teaching here and in the rest of scripture, be restricted uh, either to the near future restricted to the time in which Zechariah prophesied at this point, nor to the very final days before Christ's second coming. Likewise, in in that connection also, this prophecy cannot properly be interpreted to refer only to the literal uh, geopolitical nation of Israel or the literal Jerusalem that is referred to repeatedly in these passages. According to the New Testament, the Jerusalem whom God defends and saves is ultimately the city of the living God. It is that Mount Zion of the New Testament, which is made of the redeemed from all nations, all nations who are blessed through the seed of Abraham, as God has promised. God promises great saving blessings in this chapter before us. He promises cleansing. He promises purging. He promises refining. And uh, those ideas actually might be captured with one word, that is purification. They involve, each of them, in a, a kind of purification that God promises to accomplish. The Lord will purify his people. That's our theme for uh, this morning and our consideration of this chapter. The Lord will purify his people. And our four points uh, describe four ways in which God purifies his people. Beginning with a fountain opened. In verse 1 we read, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Now there were these many cleansing rites that we find in the Old Testament under the law. Cleansing rites that involved the use of the blood of sacrifices, or the use of water, or a mixture of water and the ashes of a of a heifer that had been sacrificed cleansing rites, through sprinkling, through pouring, through dipping. And these cleansing rites, all of them, in terms of their essential significance and meaning, they pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and the only blood that cleanses from sin. That's what we're to understand in such prophecies as Ezekiel chapter 36 Where we read, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now, we know that the water of baptism doesn't wash away sin. The water of baptism itself doesn't purify the heart. It's through the blood and spirit of Christ that such things are accomplished. The water being a sign of such cleansing. But this water is used to refer... This imagery points to Christ. In the book of Ezekiel, we read in the 47th chapter that water flows from the altar of the temple. And it becomes a river. And it becomes an impassable river. Bringing life, bringing healing, wherever it flows. So this this imagery of water, water in abundance, is so commonly used in Scripture to speak of cleansing from sin, the purification and the restoration and the healing of lives that are otherwise submerged in the power of guilt. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We read this wonderful assurance in John's first epistle in the first chapter. He was pierced, as we considered last time, he was pierced for our sin and guilt. He was pierced by those thorns that punctured his brow and the blood flowed from his head and from his hands and his feet, pierced by nails driven into them by which he was affixed to the wood of the cross, pierced by that spear that was thrust into his side, in which water and blood came out. He was pierced for our sin and for our guilt. And his bloodletting from all these wounds opened up, again in the figurative language of Scripture, a fountain, a fountain to wash away all our sins. And we need to appreciate the the power of this imagery, right? What, What are some thoughts that are associated with a fountain? Well, for one thing, it involves the idea of an abundance. It's not a little trickle. A fountain springs up and flows and the water pours out of it. And there is an abundance of mercy, of pardon, cleansing power in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is this constant provision and constant supply In the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a fountain is a continuously flowing source of, of water. Now, of course, we know that that does not mean that Jesus Christ continues to bleed. It doesn't mean that the blood literally continues to flow from his veins. It doesn't mean that Christ even is continually sacrificed in an unbloody sacrifice of the Mass. No, Christ's death was a once-for-all sacrifice. But there is an all-sufficiency to that death that provides a continuous supply to any and all who would come to Him repentant, come to Him in their guilt and sin to be washed clean from their sins. Whatever their guilt may be, there is an all-sufficient supply in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that connection also, we must uh observe that the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem there in verse 1, this is not a limiting district description. In other words, it doesn't mean that this fountain opened is for the house of David and for the inhabitants of uh, Jerusalem, full stop. That the meaning of this fountain is somehow fulfilled and exhausted in provision for the literal descendants of David, or his house, or his tribe, or for the literal people who inhabited Jerusalem. No, we know that thousands of Jews were converted, even at Pentecost. And thousands more in weeks following were given the numbers, and no doubt many of them were uh, from the house of David, of the tribe of Judah, perhaps even more closely related to David's lineage somehow. And many of them were inhabitants of Jerusalem. But we know that at Pentecost there were dwellers from uh, places throughout the empire. Jews, many who had come for the for the Passover feast, they didn't live in Jerusalem. And throughout the New Testament, there are many, many thousands, no doubt, of Jewish converts who came to the Lord Jesus Christ and washed in this fountain. In other words, this reference to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem is not a limiting description that restricts this fountain to these particular people. As literalists ought to insist, but it's a failure to appreciate, again, the way the Scripture itself interprets the Old Testament prophecies, particularly also in the book of Acts. We not only read of numerous Jewish converts from a great variety of places. The Gospel uh, went forth to uh, the Roman Empire, and the apostles entered the synagogues, and they proclaimed Christ to those who were dwelling in all these places. And and there were those who believed But we also read that God made very, very clear. He showed Peter that his plan was to cleanse people of all nations from their sin. And Peter was told not to call that common which God has cleansed. Because all those who believe in him, their hearts are purified by faith. They're washed from their sins, whoever they may be. He is the propitiation for our sins, says the Apostle John. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, without distinction between Jew or Gentile. This fountain is opened for all sin and uncleanness. And it doesn't matter how dark the sin, it doesn't matter how depraved the character might be. In Corinthians chapter 6, we read of fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and thieves and covetousness people and drunkards and revilers and extortioners. And they will not inherit the kingdom of God. All oh, but we read the next verse. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There is an abundant washing from sin and cleansing in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me pure within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount. No other fountain I know. No other supply. No other source of such abundant Constant cleansing for all is there. But the blood of Jesus, the Lord will purify his people through a fountain opened in our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Lord will purify his people from idolatry and lies. In verse 2, we read, It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, but I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. The prophets and the unclean spirits. Now, those ideas are often joined closely together in scripture because uh, evil spirits are lying spirits. And sometimes they... Uh, Occupy and come forth from the mouths of lying people. And the Lord Je- Jesus will purge the land and people from them. You see, when the truth of Christ enters in, lies and deception is expelled. When the truth of Christ enters in, liars and deceivers... They're exposed for who they are. And that's what's promised here. These false prophets will quit pretending to speak in God's name. That's really what verses 4 and 5 describe. It shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. They will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive. It uh, suggests that these false prophets would like to dress like a true prophet. Like Elijah, who wore a hairy garment. And maybe they tried to gain some credibility by the way they dress. But they wore the hairy garment to deceive. And they're going to be exposed. And you'll say, I'm no prophet. I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. They're going to repudiate the claim to speak in the name of God. They'll even lie about the evidence. In verse 6, we have the question, One will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Well, we know that it was a characteristic of the false prophets to inflict themselves with wounds, right? That's what the prophets of Baal did. They cut themselves and said, Oh, Baal, hear us. And so this was a characteristic of of false prophets that he might bear such wounds on his chest or on his back. But when they're exposed, oh, Oh, no, no, we're just goofing off with my friends. Right, a likely story. What are they trying to do? Trying to escape judgment. Trying to escape the consequences of daring to speak lies in the name of the Lord. You see, grace produces zeal for God's truth. And God purifies His people also by purging evil. And He moves His people to do that. You see, grace uh brings church discipline. Grace makes people put God's truth and honor above worldly loyalties and worldly considerations. That's described in other, rather shocking terms in this passage, isn't it? We read in verse 3, It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and his mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord and his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through. They will pierce him. It sounds like a death blow. They'll thrust him through when he prophesies. He has committed a capital offense. He's going to face the consequences. That sounds really drastic. Well, it's like the prophet is describing actually the kind of zeal and concern for the honor of God that's taught in his law. Almost almost verbatim in passages such as as Deuteronomy chapter 13, where it says in verse 6 and following, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, Your eye, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people. You are to be the first witness against your family member, if they want to entice you to idolatry. And we say horrible, yes, fearful, dreadful. Amen. But what do we learn of God from this passage? What do we learn of the evil of sin? What do we learn of godly zeal for truth? Certainly something. And here again, it is not that sometime before the very end, sometime when Jesus sets up his throne in literal Jerusalem, that the Old Testament law is then again to to be reenacted and all those civil and judicial laws are again going to be enforced? No, no, no. That's a literalistic interpretation of such passages that does not respect the way the Bible itself interprets prophecy. So it's not speaking of some future day when the judicial law will actually be carried out again in literal Jerusalem. No, rather we're given instruction. We're given teaching about the effects of grace really entering into the hearts of His people. It makes them zealous for the truth and for the honor of God with a zeal that will put truth and the honor of God above the nearest and dearest earthly loyalties. Now, brothers and sisters, loving children, loving family members is not worldly. But it can become worldly. It becomes worldly when people love brothers and sisters, spouses, children, more than they love Christ. So much that Jesus uses such radical language when he says, if anyone does not hate his father, his mother, and brother and sister, he cannot be my disciple. Comparatively, loyalty to Christ comes first. And love for loved ones becomes worldly. If they're loved more than faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's worldly if parents enable the sins of their children. Or if parents shelter them from the consequence of the sins of their children. Or if parents excuse the sins of their children. Or ignore them. And fail to call them out lovingly, directly. And yes, brothers and sisters, sometimes that means preaching the law to your children. And saying to them, when you neglect to worship the God, you're sinning against him. God calls you to worship. God commands you to honor him. And in this house, we uphold the will and the law of God. Yes, that's preaching the law. And remember, one purpose of the law is to expose the reality of sin. So that people would repent and be saved. That's a very loving thing to do. Now, we want to speak the truth in love. But we must know that to excuse, to minimize, to ignore, to shelter loved ones while they continue in sin—that is not loving. It's not honoring to God. It's not loving. And see, here is a difference than the old covenant and the new covenant. You now, the consequence for idolatry and false prophecy was fatal death. The goal doesn't seem to be restoration. But church discipline, well, that's a different matter. And so that people might be restored by grace. Grace produces zeal for God's truth. And where grace enters then, sin is expelled and sin is purged. And this is the constant. This is the great, unchanging, biblical principle that we need to hear also in this passage. Okay, we can look. We can look for all kinds of historical examples. We can look for examples throughout the book of Acts. We can, we can hear about the consequence of the gospel entering there in Ephesus where these false teachers brought all their occultic books at great cost and they lit them on fire, expressing their repentance. And we can read how the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and true God. We can look throughout church history. We can look at the time of Reformation, where the word of God was restored to its rightful place, and our forefathers were not ashamed at all to encode in their confessions that the mass is an accursed idolatry because they were zealous for God. And they were not afraid to smash idols and remove them from the place of worship. Because repentance meant putting away idolatry and sin. In accounts of revival, that's what you see historically. Sometimes whole communities were changed. The drinking houses were largely shut down in Northampton during the first great awakening under Jonathan Edwards and others. It was said that you could pile, you could pile gold on your doorstep in front of the streets and it would be left alone it's because people were so occupied with the things of God. We hope and pray for manifestations of such grace. We hope and pray for the zeal of God, for worship and service and obedience and love and faithfulness among us. We'd love to see that extend throughout the churches, throughout the land. But in the meantime, brothers and sisters, let us not fail to live it now. Let's not put prophetic speculation above real-time application. You see, that's the problem with so much speculative, inventive, creative treatments of Zechariah and Revelation. It becomes a playground for so-called Bible teachers. Seem to be in a competition to outvie one another, outdo one another in their fanciful uh, interpretations where they like to plug in details to current events. We know that the day of the Lord is coming. We do not know when. We know that that day will so come as a thief in the night. And the practical application of that is given to us in 1st Peter. Second Peter chapter three, when it says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Yes, that, that's the application of the certainty of the coming of the day of the Lord. A day of judgment and a day of salvation. Realities that must shape our priorities and our perspective and our practice now. Don't let prophetic speculation obscure the importance of real-time application. The Lord purifies His people by putting down lies and idolatry. The Lord purifies His people, thirdly, by striking the shepherd. And in verse seven, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Now the Lord calls him my shepherd. Now that's that's something different than we say. The Lord is my shepherd. We're confessing that he is our savior. He is the one who provides for us and cares for us. God is here saying, my shepherd, in contrast to these false prophets. They're not his shepherds. But rather, my shepherd is one sent to save his sheep. My companion, I and my father are one. This shepherd is in fact the Lord the Lord of hosts, who comes with salvation, who will feed his sheep like a shepherd, who will gather the lambs in his arms. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one beside me, the Lord says, the shepherd of Israel. And Jesus leaves us no doubt as to its meaning when he quotes this passage in Matthew chapter 26. As they went out to the Mount of Olives, following the institution of the supper at the Passover. And Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's about to happen. That's a reference to Jesus' death. There's no doubt about it. In fact, the next verse, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. To strike this shepherd is a death blow that the Lord Jesus is about to endure. And it was not by the hand of men, not this part. He was pierced by a man-held spear. But there was a harsher judgment, and there was a heavier hand, and and a deeper punishment that he endured. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He makes his soul an offering for sin. And by this judgment of God against the shepherd, all purifying grace flows. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, reaches every believer, because here our sins were purged and here our forgiveness was obtained, and here our sanctification was secured. And from this, our ultimate deliverance from all suffering was made secure forever. And that leads us finally to see that the Lord purifies his people by refining his remnant. The Lord has his little ones. I will turn my hand upon or against my little ones. Fear not, little flock, Jesus says, for it is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. These are the true Israel. And a comparatively small group compared to those who are called Israel, or we might say a comparatively small number of true Christians Among all those who are called Christians or who would call themselves Christians, that's always the way it's been. There is this remnant principle that we find in Scripture in so many places, Old and New Testament. They are not all Israel who are called Israel or who are all of Israel. Though the children of Israel be as many as the sands of the sea, yet the remnant shall be saved. And Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that that even now, despite the, the unbelief of Israel, by and large, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. He himself belonged to such a remnant, saved by grace. As were those many thousands of Jews who had been converted At Pentecost, and the time following, and down through the years, down through the years, down through the years to this day. And thus all Israel shall be saved. That hardening is only and always partial. There will always be this remnant among the Jews, according to the election of grace. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until all God's elect from all the nations are gathered into that one fold along with their Jewish brothers and sisters. That's the significance of this language of two-thirds, one-third, two-thirds dying, one-third being saved, defended, and purified. It's, it's remnant language, really. God purifies his true people. It's described there in verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire. Will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested language very similar to what we have in in uh, first Peter, where it describes those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God as those who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time, who rejoice though Now, if need be, we've been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the language of testing. Refining trials that serve to purify God's people. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he purifies or prunes that it may bear more fruit. Through tribulation we enter the kingdom. We're assured of that. I'll sanctify to you your deepest distress. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. We are chastened by the Lord so that we do not perish with the world. That's the Bible's description of God's purpose and intention through hardships and sufferings and all the various forms that they come to us. You see, God's covenant grace achieves his purpose. We hear that in the last verse. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Right? Isn't that, isn't that the heart of this covenant relationship that God establishes with his people? I will be your God. You'll be my people. And that will not fail. That will be realized. And all the seed of Abraham, all the children of promise, whether Jew or Gentile, they're all going to enter fully into that saving relationship with God. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy also brings us all the way uh, to heaven. It brings us to that blessed hope. It brings us to that ultimate deliverance and ultimate expulsion from everyone who makes a lie. It brings us, indeed, to that time that Paul speaks of in Titus when he says that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, Yes, our purchase from the guilt and the power of sin is for purification. Until that great day, a special people, special persons, we might say, because our text really wants to emphasize the individual here, too, as well. It says, and each one, each one will say, the Lord is my God. It won't be a nominal confession. It won't be a matter of saying the right thing. That will be the confession of the heart the relationship to God who is my God, my Savior, my only comfort in life and in death. Yes, God will gather a vast number, a multitude which no one can number, but they'll be made of individuals, each of whom have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb and are described in the book of Revelation that those who are before him and the promise of God's covenant will be realized in all its fullness. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he will be my son. The personal, the individual relationship with God along with the corporate gathering of all God's people. God will purify his people through a fountain opened, from idolatry and lies, through striking the shepherd, by refining them until that great day. Amen.